Thank you. It's wonderful to see a big crowd. Now, I hope I haven't brought you here under false pretenses because all of the other talks that I've done have been about specific composers, and it's been uh, easy to go through their lives and their works and talk about what makes them tick. Tonight, I want to tackle something more ambitious. Uh, essentially, I want to get to the root of why people make music, and once they start making music, what makes it work or not work for them? Why do some pieces of music, why do some styles of music endure and others disappear? So we have to go back to the dawn of music. We're not exactly sure when that is, <laughs> but let us say that somehow, um, around the time humans are developing language, that they are expressing their emotions and their um, <coughs> desire to court humans of the opposite sex and all of the basic, primarily, uh, most important things to human beings somehow through sound. And that through that sound, they have to um, differentiate between uh, I, wanna, I want to drag you home to my cave and watch out, there's a tiger that's about to bite your head off. So the humans have different pitches and different um, inflections to these sounds, and pretty soon they develop a fairly sophisticated vocabulary that is recognizable, okay? Now, I'm making this up, you know that, right? But I think it's as good a theory as, as anybody can propose. So we're talking, I don't know, 35,000 years ago. Now. Okay, more than that. <laughs> Depending on how sophisticated, what kind of a tiger is it, right? <laughs> um, so now, the first instruments that have been discovered are almost 5,000 years old. So almost 5,000 years ago, in China, in Mesopotamia, human, almost like us people, are starting to actually craft flutes and drums and harps and lyres out of vulture bones and whatever else is available. And suddenly, we can see that music has become part of life. Now, big difference between ah and somebody being able to play four different notes on a flute. And of course, we would love to know just exactly what rhythms they played, how sophisticated they were, when did we move from just clapping to hitting rocks together to actually creating some kind of a stretched uh, animal skin over, over a circle. And um, I found something on the internet that I want to share with you because uh, I don't know if this has been widely available, but uh, the very first written music ever discovered comes from Greece about 2,000 years ago. And it is surprisingly sophisticated, I think. So, I don't know if this is like period performance, but this is, this, is what, this is what was discovered. And the Greeks actually notated it, not on a staff, but with uh, letters. Um, and over the letters they wrote uh, lines and dots to show how long the note was going to be held. Okay, so I have to get in the light. 
And this song means, while you live, shine, don't suffer anything at all. Life exists only a short while, and time demands its toll. So 2,000 years ago, people were very smart. Okay. Hoson zes fainu, maiden holo sulu puhu, pusoli gones tiso zen, titolo chronos apaite. That was the whole song. Okay. But already, what a sophisticated use of melody. The fact is, we somehow respond to certain intervals. Now, I have a theory about that, too, and I can't prove this either. But any sound, be it played on a piano or a train whistle or um, a pebble falling into a lake, has certain overtones. And the overtone series is the same uh, no matter what era we're in. It is that the note itself uh, sounds at a certain frequency and that the first overtone is one octave above that. In other words, double that frequency. And the second overtone is a fifth above that. All right, and then the third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth. But what, what the piano can't do, of course, is play all the notes in between the white and black notes and the overtone series is not exactly the pitches on a piano. But the pitches in music, both in Asian music and in Western music, from what we can see of old ancient instruments, is the same. The, the intervals that humans have chosen to sing are more or less the same. Now, early music, like this very early music, doesn't have great big leaps they didn't have, oh, Jose, can you see? But that didn't make any melodic sense to early ears. Intervals remained very small for many centuries after the Greeks. So if you think about the thousands of years of unison singing that humans did, uh, intervals probably were rarely bigger than a third. Uh, think of how you imagine uh, chant going on in the Middle Ages for all those centuries. Uh, you don't think of right? That had to wait till the 19th century. So finally, sometime shortly before the Renaissance, somehow, maybe by accident, uh, this monodic singing, this, this single melody singing, gives way to different pitches being sung at the same time. And for a long while, this was only fifths. Okay. And then, of course, we begin to differentiate intervals and have people singing thirds and fourths and fifths, and pretty soon, Polyphony emerges. Sorry, this is a little like a music lecture. Polyphony meaning that there are many voices sounding at the same time and yet somehow creating something which is harmonious. Now the order and chaos part comes in here. If sounds together 
can still be harmonious, there must be some kind of a scientific system to make them work out. And of course, uh, different cultures have had somewhat different systems. For some reason, Western Europe became a place where musical language was developed in a different way than in other parts of the world. Of course, there are sophisticated hybrid musical systems in Asia and in, in uh, the subcontinent. You know, in Indian music, there are tremendously complex things. I am not discounting any of those cultures and their musics. But Western music went through this extraordinary period of three or four centuries where it became more than just a language. It became a science, a way of expressing all kinds of things psychologically, and larger and larger musical forms grew out of this. So we're going to go on this journey, but focus particularly on the classical period uh, between, say, 1750 and the early 1800s, because that's such a turning point. Okay, so after we emerge from single note melodies, and then people begin to sing melodies in fifths, and then they discover that by using thirds that they can actually uh, create more complex polyphonic textures. Um, this, for example, Palestrina in the 1500s wrote things like this. and not strange to our ears, even though it's almost 500 years old, we do notice that the melody does not leap around. Palestrina said if a large interval, such as a perfect fourth, is used, then the next note must come inside the interval. All right, it was all right to go dee-da-da, but not dee-da-da. So, things were much more contained. Think, if you will, for a second about uh, not our national anthem, which leaps wildly around, but the British national anthem. How contained is this? Uses only six, seven notes. And it doesn't leap around at all. And this is the climax. I mean, that is economy of means, right? It goes up one note higher than the rest of the song, and everybody can sing it because it, it covers a range of only a minor seventh. So that's, that's a very um, good example of a successful song. But it's not only that it is within the range of a normal human being. Every song that we take for granted has a syntax to it. And there has to be the right amount of order and the right amount of chaos. Now again, I'm gonna say something that I have no reason to 
put forth, except that, uh, except that I believe it. Uh, <laughs> I think that is probably true in many life systems. I assume that um, in a race where there was no illness, that that would be lovely for a short period of time, but that race would quickly die out because um, any complicated system, to be worthily complicated, has to have within it the possibility of some experimentation. And of course, it's never good for the person who is sick, but for a whole race, it's uh, very beneficial that nature keeps trying things out. And because things are being tried out, sometimes it works better and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, if we lived on an earth that was completely inflexible, there would be no tsunamis, but there would probably be no earth either because it's the fact that the Earth is a living geological entity and not a completely rigid one that allows it to continue to be. Okay, so music is a microcosm of that. If we have a musical system with too much order, it's not interesting and it doesn't allow us to express ourselves. If the British National Amp Even at a certain point, it would become simple enough that it would cease to interest us. So the right amount of unpredictability mixed with a heavy dose of predictability is the recipe. Now, that's an oversimplification, but I think if we looked at hundreds of melodies, we would find always this blend of, I almost know what's going to happen, but I don't really know what's going to happen. Um, uh, right? If the tune went... It probably wouldn't have stuck. But it has just enough... And then suddenly it goes up. But notice how there is a rhythmic germ that stays the same. Our psyches respond to this, right? Um, what well-known tune is this? Happy birthday. Yes, and what else? No, shave and haircut is in duple. This is in triple. <laughs> Well, it actually is the same as the Star Spangled Banner, which I think explains the success of the Star Spangled Banner because subconsciously, every time we sing it, we're sort of feeling the same thing that we do when we sing Happy Birthday. So that could only, that could be the only reason that this, this very difficult song is still, um, still with us because if you think, this written for? Um, so <laughs> I think that, that um, the, the fact that bum, 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 has certain associations for us that, uh, that are happy definitely works in the favor of the Star Spangled Banner. So any tune, now I don't mean to take your enjoyment away from just singing tunes. You don't have to analyze all the tunes that you sing. But anything that you sing, if you examine it, has rhythmic and melodic 
germs that repeat over and over with small variations, a small amount of chaos, which is probably typical of what's going on in our brain. Uh, if we were wired to only be able to handle exactly the same situation over and over again, we certainly wouldn't be here. If we were wired never to remember anything in the past and to take every new situation as completely new, we probably wouldn't be here either. So, here we come through the Renaissance with these great composers dedicating themselves to using this musical language that has come out of nothing natural, nothing more than the harmonic series. If we can say that, that the overtones of a note created fifths and that uh, from these intervals we developed uh, what they played on those ancient harps, which was a tetrachord. It didn't sound exactly like that, but tetra is Greek for four, okay? So this sequence of four note, bum, 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 put two of those together, and you get what we think of as a major scale. But of course, the Greeks didn't necessarily tune their tetrachords the same way, and they had lots of different scales, what they called the modes. The modes had different emotional connotations to everyone, and they were the Ionian mode, the Dorian mode, the Phrygian mode, the Lydian mode, the Mixolydian mode, there's not a test, you don't have to remember this, the Aeolian mode, and then the Locrian mode. Now the Locrian mode was the one that Plato said nobody should use because it would make you morally degenerate. Okay. <laughs> because even 2,000 years ago, it was clear that something sounded, you know, if this is take me out to the ball game in major, then in Locrian mode, it's, it's somehow, I'm feeling morally degenerate already. <laughs> okay, so the Locrian mode was the, the evil one. But all of these modes were used, and if you look at the little song that, that I found on the internet that the Greeks had 2,000 years ago, or other hymns from that time that we still have some record of, they were in the Phrygian mode, and they were in the Dorian mode, and the Mixolydian mode. So, in a funny way, part of what made the outburst of music possible was the simplification of this system. So, that's not to say the modes, the other modes weren't used anymore, but the major key and the minor key, just two of those modes, became the predominant modes for the Renaissance composers. And then, when the Renaissance gave way to the Baroque, um, the primary modes that Bach and Handel and Scarlatti and Corelli and Vivaldi all used and Telemann uh, were the major and the minor keys. So that was really a simplification but because it was simpler, they could use counterpoint much more extensively. Counterpoint is the use of simultaneous melodies, which will be operating in different ways rhythmically, so that they make sense together. Okay, um, if we think of the high points of counterpoint, we might think of Bach fugues or something like this. Uh,
notice that the two voices are not playing the same rhythm. But given the harmonic language of major and minor chords, they always fit together in a harmonious way. So Bach developed this language of polyphony and of counterpoint. And now we're coming to the place where composers start to explore different amounts of chaos on purpose. All right, Bach wrote uh, 48 preludes and 48 fugues in all the different keys. And if you listen to some of the Bach preludes, you would be struck by the fact that they keep exactly the same rhythmic pattern for the entire piece. That's unusual for a piece of more contemporary music. Uh, you recognize, I'm sure, the first Bach prelude. The, the rhythm doesn't change through the entire piece. However, there's five-part harmony. So uh, he finds the depth of that harmonic progression interesting enough that there is no uh, melody added on or any contrapuntal voicing. The second prelude So continues through most of it without any variation in its rhythmic structure. It's just a progression of harmony. Then suddenly, towards the end, Bach goes out of C major. And so purposefully, four bars from the end of the piece, he says, what else might we explore about the harmonic language of this piece, okay? Or um, the fifth prelude. Again, the rhythmic structure continues the same way until the very end when suddenly. is an exploration of as far as harmony could go in the early uh, 1700s. Because these diminished seventh chords have no particular home tonality. They are free-floating entities. They're mercenary harmonies. But then, he says, oh, it's all right, because we can come back to order. But he very purposely imposes that chaos so that we can have the feeling of resolution that we experience at the, at the very end. So um, Bach 
was constantly within that language exploring what is the possibility of the diminished seventh chord that has no home tonality. All right, Bach used much more complex means than his contemporary Handel. Handel was born in the same year as Bach, 1685. And if you listen to Handel, you know that it can be glorious and magnificent, but that the harmonic means used to achieve that are usually simpler than those used by Bach. If you think of the Messiah, um, toward the end, the soprano makes a, a declaration of her faith. I know that my chords are simpler than Bach asking a soprano to make the same kind of So Bach feels a more harmonic complexity is required in order to uh, express things more deeply. Okay. All of this becomes much simpler in the succeeding years. Bach's sons, Bach had a lot of children. Bach had 21 kids, but um, <laughs> he had a son named um, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, who was born in 1714. And uh, it actually, Bach named him for Philip Telemann, Georg Philip Telemann, who was a friend of Bach's. And um, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach began to explore the simplicity of the newly emerging classical style, not the rich polyphony of his father. 21 years later, by his second wife, Bach had another son, his 11th son, his last son, um, who was Johann Christian Bach, uh, 1735 he was born. And um, by the time Johann Christian Bach is growing up and composing, he's completely left his father's polyphony and counterpoint behind him. So in the early 1700, like 1750, uh, right, right around 1735 to 1750, this style is emerging where Italian song has begun to influence the course of Western European music so strongly that accompaniments become much simpler and serve the purpose only of supporting a single line melody. Now, the first person who really changed things was not Haydn, Mozart, or Beethoven, but uh, Gluck. Christoph Wilhelm von Gluck wrote melodies that were simple and yet penetrating and moving, and he did something which Bach did not do. <coughs> he discovered the value of silence. Bach would create a gorgeous river of sound which would keep going, whether it was for two minutes or two hours, but unless it was a break between movements, Bach did not really use silence. Gluck, on the other hand, even in a very uh, simple, beautiful aria, uses silence as the high point uh, the dramatic high point. So, for example, in his opera Orpheus and Eurydice, um, 
Orpheus is singing, what will I do without Eurydice? You know, she's down in hell and he's decided to, to go down because he can't live without her. And he sings, then he calls for her and these two silences in which there's no answer are more important than the melody that Orfeo sings to say that he can't live without her. After the second silence, the tonality changes from C major to C minor. So, Gluck, with very simple classical means, finds a, a, a direct way to express these melodies, and Haydn, born right about the same time as Gluck, takes this up, carries it even further. Haydn is a very interesting man. Haydn, Haydn gets a, a short stick in a way because he happened to live at the same time as Mozart, you know. But Haydn himself said, there's no question that Mozart is the greatest composer of our time, perhaps of all time. But it was Haydn, born 24 years before Mozart, who figured all these things out and who developed the musical forms which then Mozart and Beethoven would use. Haydn was born in 1732. His father um, made wheels, but he also was an amateur musician, and he recognized that Haydn was very talented. He sent Haydn away when he was six years old to a bigger town so that Haydn could have decent music lessons, and Haydn never lived with his parents again. So he lived to be 77, but he, he was always a loner, um, not so surprisingly. And he would go uh, from a position in a music school where he was a soprano in the choir to a position where he would uh, compose for somebody out in Nowheresburg, Austria. And, um, you know, he, he would just lock himself in a room and, and write string quartets or write symphonies. But he didn't just write string quartets and symphonies, he pretty much invented string quartets and symphonies because he wouldn't get fed if he didn't. So when Haydn was working for these people, uh, he was usually composing because the lord of the manor was a violinist and his neighbor was a cellist and uh, music needed to be created daily, <laughs> you know, because that's, that's what they had time to do and that's what they did. So Haydn uh, found himself in the service of somebody who because of his neighbors, had uh, two violins and a cello, and Haydn could play the viola. So um, suddenly, 10 string quartets appear from the young man Haydn. Now, the string quartet was not a musical form 
we think of it as just sort of a, a given in, in musical history, but it was not. Uh, there was the trio sonata, and suddenly Haydn has the idea of adding a voice, and lo and behold, uh, these marvelous string quartets begin to appear. And he devises a system of musical movements. Now, even in Bach's suites, the movements are all dance movements. They are slow and fast dance movements. Galliards and pavans and sarabands and courants and alamans and jigs. Haydn has a whole different idea. He says, let's take a theme, a tune, a shorter tune perhaps, and impose just a certain amount of chaos on it. So this is intentional chaos. Haydn takes uh, his, his theme and then he develops it, and then he has like a dialogue with two characters, a different theme with a different emotional character. And these two themes have a conversation, and then they begin to venture into more distant harmonic territory, and then at the end of the movement, they return to the home key. Now this form that basically Haydn devised is called sonata form, but it is misleading. It makes it sound like that's the form of the whole sonata. It's really the form most typical of the first movements of sonatas in this classical period. And because that first movement is usually in the tempo allegro, fast, the, uh, the form is often called the sonata allegro form. Because quite often, for the second movement of these sonatas, or string quartets, or symphonies, Haydn, or Mozart, or Beethoven, would write a beautiful, slow melody. Not always, but frequently. And usually that slow melody would be in a different, but related key. Most <laughs> typically, whatever key the opening movement is in, that um, slow movement would be in the subdominant key. In other words, a fourth below the um, home key. But that doesn't always happen. Here's the reason for that. To old-fashioned ears, not all keys had the same tuning. And every time you went one key to the flat side, the whole key actually sounded a little more flat and if you went to the sharp side, the whole key actually sounded a little more sharp and bright. So if Mozart writes a sonata in B flat, expect that the slow movement would be in the subdominant of E flat. And that the third movement, which would typically be a more cheerful, fast movement again, would go back to the home key of B flat. So this became a sort of standard practice, and frequently a fourth movement was added in the middle so that the happy,
fast movement would be the fourth movement. And that would be a minuet, because there was still that tie to the dance movements. So sonata form began to develop from uh, the, the binary forms of the Baroque and the dance movements, but then turned into this much more interesting dramatic psychological piece where there are two opposing uh, themes. I don't know, think of Beethoven's third piano concerto, the first theme. A very masculine theme, right? And then the second theme in the first movement is So a theme with a different character. And these two different characters counterbalance each other. That is the key in the sonata allegro form. That, of course, they can go through more remote key signatures and return to the home key. But the fact that there are at least two themes that have different characters is very important. Um, think of Beethoven's first piano concerto here. That's the first theme. Now, the second theme goes something like... Um, it's not coming to me right now. We'll come back to that later. <laughs> okay, so if you think of any of these themes, you also have to look at the elements of order and chaos of rhythm and melody. For example, I played you a little snip of Mozart. Mozart always sounds like it's perfectly ordered, but in fact, it's never symmetrical and it's never really perfectly ordered at all. The second time the thing that almost is like this comes, it has extra note. So it's almost like a human face. If, if we had all perfectly symmetrical faces with no beauty marks or anything like that, and, and we all looked the same. Um, again, I think nature is so smart, so much, so much smarter than we are, that um, you know, we, we become distinctive and individual because we do all have the, the physical differences that we have. And it's the same with melody, that um, these all sound innocent, and yet think. How would a lesser, how would um, Cherubini or Spohr or Hummel have written this? Nothing against those guys, right? But uh, Mozart instinctively figured out how to make every melody have distinctive characteristics so that it remained in your ear and it took on almost a life of its own. Um, now, some composers like Beethoven did us a favor because they wrote sketches, and so we see how they went from a decent melody to a fabulous melody. Mozart, unfortunately, did all of the sketching in his head, so we don't have any record of all of the stages he went through to arrive at the finished product, because that happened mentally, and then he would write the finished product down. Uh, that's frustrating. I, I wish that he had um, needed to work things out more, but he didn't. <laughs> He, he wrote a letter to his sister once, I know I've said this before, where um, 
he sent her a prelude and fugue. His sister was also an excellent pianist. And he said, I apologize that my handwriting in the prelude is sloppy, but I was composing the fugue as I wrote the prelude down for you. <laughs> so his mind never stopped processing music and processing melody. So I think perhaps more than any other composer, Mozart uh, didn't try to stretch the harmonic or rhythmic uh, conventions of the classical period, but made the most out of what they had to offer. And this is probably why Haydn said to Mozart's father, I swear before God that your son is the greatest composer known to me because he said he has more taste. <laughs> By which I think he meant that he had that instinctive ability to turn melodies so that they always went beyond the predictable but never went beyond uh, the right amount of chaos to make them um, extremely memorable. This is the slow movement of Mozart's piano concerto in, uh, well, let's look at all three movements. Uh, there's a piano concerto in A major. And, uh, So Mozart takes very simple means, right? Here's his melody. Now, again, it could have just gone. But no, the third time. So he always takes a certain amount of variation so that the ear recognizes the similarity, follows it with interest, but isn't confused because we haven't gone to somewhere so different. And this is, this is the art, the art of uh, chaos and order in music. So um, I made myself some notes of pieces I thought you might find interesting. Ah. Mozart knew what audiences he was writing for. And when he wrote the opera, The Marriage of Figaro, there was one song that he wanted to make sure nobody heard before the premiere. He intentionally wrote an aria that was simple enough that he knew it could be remembered at first hearing. And he knew that it would be the Don't Cry For Me Argentina of The Marriage of Figaro. <laughs> but he didn't want anybody to hear it because if everybody in Prague was singing this song before the opera opened, that would have stolen his thunder. So here's the song. You can all sing it if you want to. Non pionderai farfalloni amoroso Notte giorno d'intorno girando Delle belle turbando il riposo Okay, why? Why is this a crowd-pleasing song? Well, if we analyzed it, Mozart, very unusually for Mozart, takes the exact same rhythmic figuration and just moves it down one degree in the scale. If you look at most Mozart, once you hear something, the next time it comes, it's subtly varied. 
but he wants everybody to get this right away. Non più andrai farfalone amoroso, notte giorno d'intorno girando. The only other example I know of of a composer purposefully putting a song in an opera where they knew it would be a hit and didn't want anybody to hear it, including the singer who sang it, uh, until the opening day was Verdi in, La, in uh, Rigoletto with La Donna Mobile. The poor tenor didn't get it till the morning of the show because everybody in, uh, I don't remember where that was premiered, but whatever Italian city it was premiered in, everybody would have been singing that song and that would have taken that great moment away from the opera. Interestingly, La Donna Mobile is one of the other few tunes I can think of by a great composer where the first phrase moves down one step to become the second phrase with no variation at all. La Donna Mobile, and then Qual più il vento, right? Now, if it then went, it would be no hit at all, right? But, but the fact that the first two germs are exactly the same, makes it stick in our head, and then that Verdi is a great So he takes two different variations on the same rhythmic germ, and because they're different, it's enough different that we love it, but it's same enough that we remember it. How to write, I mean, if, if, if we could write it down, we'd all be millionaires, right? But um, Andrew Lloyd Webber can do the same thing. Of course, actually, he took that tune from Puccini and <laughs> paid $7 million to the Puccini estate, saying it was my mistake. I just, I, I, I heard this a lot when I was a child. And, um, <laughs> He did. He, did. he thought it was better to just pay up, you know, a day's salary for him, and um, and and collect the royalties than than to uh, to change the melody in the Phantom of the Opera. But because of the repetitive nature of it, it's just repetitive enough that we can't forget it. But then it does something. So when you think of great melody, it's not great inventiveness. It's just the right amount of inventiveness. And I think that's an important distinction, you know. Um, Haydn. Haydn sensed that music could be used in different ways than any composer before him ever dreamed. Bach was hired by Leipzig, and he wrote magnificent cantatas, more than 200 of them, as you know. Um, and he just kept turning out masterpiece after masterpiece. But he never thought he would stamp his own personality onto those cantatas. Uh, that is an idea, really, of the 18th century. It's the precursor to Romanticism, because suddenly, Science advances in a way that makes people feel, uh, of course there's a God ruling everything, but really we can figure this out on our own. And I think that Bach, and I would say all, all of the Baroque composers didn't question this, because we're talking about what is the cultural context they lived in. But I do think 
that uh, Haydn questions it very much, even though Haydn is very devout Catholic and has no questions about religion. But he feels like, I'm in this court, I'm the musician here, and I want to make a personal statement that, that um, you know, it, it's me, it's my signature. So he writes this symphony for the aristocrats who are all gathered in their powdered wigs. He's like, hello! I had to... <laughs> there was one time when Prince Esterhazy uh, had, had a place near Vienna in, in Eisenstadt, and then they had a, a court residence far away in Esterhaza, and Haydn hated Esterhaza. He really felt like his friends in Vienna couldn't get to him when he wasn't in Eisenstadt, and so he wanted to musically get the message across to Prince Esterhazy that it was time to go back to Eisenstadt and back to friends and family. So he wrote a symphony in F-sharp minor, and as the symphony gets toward its close, the musicians play solos on their instruments and walk off the stage. <laughs> and the symphony closes with just two solo violins playing together, and they finish the symphony. Well, apparently Count Esterhazy got the message because the next morning he let everybody go back to Eisenstadt. And so Haydn, Haydn discovered that, that music can be used for propaganda. A great discovery. And he also um, realized that, that humor in music was possible. I don't think there's a whole lot of, of musical humor that you can look at before Haydn. Uh, of course, Mozart and Beethoven both have different kinds of sense of humor, but uh, Haydn, Haydn really pioneered so many things. And as I say, he gets a bit of a raw deal because um, although he, he wrote 104 symphonies uh, and 68 string quartets, you know, you, you hear something by, by Mozart and that extra level of subtlety and inflection makes those all the more memorable. So we're going to take a break. I would like to say that um, Jenna made the cookies, and Beth Mooney made the brownies. And, oh, I guess Whole Food made the cookies. <laughs> okay. And Beth made the brownies. Beth, I don't know, where are you? Just to thank you. Thank you very much. So let's go have some refreshments. So somebody said to me at the end of the first half, what you're espousing here as far as musical development is similar to Darwin. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that's kind of true. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought to give this a scientific slant, but, but let's say that um, if you, you know, there, there are lots of different ways to define the word chaos, uh, at least three I can think of. The Greeks talked about chaos as that state which preceded the kind of being that they knew and understood. So from some kind of organized emptiness, right, whatever that might mean, um, things emerge. Now, we're not gonna go into um, what, what happened because none of us know, but certainly composers tried, and I'm gonna give you examples in a minute, to depict that Greek classical concept of chaos an organized nothingness from which all things can emerge. But there's a scientific meaning of chaos now. Um, 
forgive me, I, I, I'm giving you accurate facts, but not nearly the fullness that this deserves. Um, a meteorologist named Edward Lawrence, about 50 years ago, decided that he would save some space and was entering data with less decimal places. He was a meteorologist, okay? So how accurately can you measure drops of rain? So he was still doing it very accurately, but he was doing it simply for expedience. And what happened was he discovered that by changing a number by a millionth, the end result was not kind of sort of different. It was completely different. And this produced what scientists call the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is that a very tiny movement can alter an outcome 180 degrees. <laughs> Oddly enough, serious physicists don't read journals about weather. So the only place he could get this published was in a meteorological journal because he was a weatherman. And um, you know, a serious scientific publication therefore wouldn't print his article. So this went undiscovered and unknown by most of the serious scientific community for decades. Uh, it was rediscovered by others as happens with many great scientific discoveries. But the point is, could it not also be so that if one great composer had lived longer or had been born or had been able to compose, you know, it, it only takes uh, one harmony change for a thousand other composers to be influenced and who knows how different the music we listen to today might be had circumstances only been different by a butterfly's wing or one composer's, you know, piece. So, we, we take it for granted that more or less what we have is inevitable. I'm not sure that that's true at all. Um, so in that sense, chaos in the scientific sense of the word has a very real bearing on music and on music history. So I, I, I referred somewhat disparagingly, and I'm feeling bad about that now, to Spohr and Hummel and Spontini and uh, Salieri. It's not that, you know, these were all really good musicians. It's just that uh, the, the top rank of musicians were the ones whose music ultimately uh, influenced us. But certainly, since Mozart was one of 132 professional musicians in Vienna when he was there in the 1780s, uh, we know there was lots of other great music being written, and Mozart frequently acknowledged his debt when he felt there was one. He felt he had a debt to Gluck and... Um, to C.P.E. Bach, he didn't discover, Mozart didn't discover the music of J.S. Bach until he was 25 years old. Um, and, and even then, he wasn't allowed to take it away with him. He was allowed to play through it at the church where it was, and uh, because he was Mozart, he remembered most of it. But um, <laughs> he, he suddenly, at the age of 25, which is only 10 years before his death, starts to use counterpoint. So that accident has a huge effect on Mozart's composition and possibly on uh, uh, you know, even a bigger effect on the history of music. So we can't undermine those things. Uh, Schubert's symphonies and other pieces by Schubert were discovered by Gilbert, <laughs> as in uh, Onward Christian Soldiers and the Mikado. They were being used as meat packing paper and Gilbert was on a trip to Vienna, and he just happened to find these things. So, you know, music history uh, hangs in the balance more than we all think it does. Okay, I promised you that there are examples of composers 
trying to recreate the Greek classical idea of chaos. What does that mean? It means that in the opening of a piece, the composer actually says, I am in a bar, in 10 bars, in 100 bars, going to recreate the universe for you in the musical language of this piece. The most extreme example of that is the opening of Wagner's Ring Cycle, because since the Ring Cycle is so much longer than pieces of classical music by Beethoven or Mozart, uh, Wagner has more time <laughs> to recreate the universe. And um, he, he depicts the, the Rhine. The Rhine in German mythology was the source of all life. And in Wagner's ring, the Rhine is in E-flat major. <laughs> You're remembering what Wagner's like already, aren't you? <laughs> For 48 bars, there's no note that's out of the E-flat major chord. For 135 bars, we stay at E-flat major. I'm actually cutting it for you, but... <laughs> expansive doesn't begin to describe what Wagner does here, right? But this comes out of experiments, on a smaller scale, obviously, done by the classical composers. When Mozart really thought he'd written a great piece, instead of beginning right away, like he gives us a full bar in the key with no melody, just to say, this is the universe that this piece is in. Like, uh, seem like a lot to you to play a bar of accompaniment. But in the framework of the classical style, it's a departure. Uh, the final piano concerto, his piano concerto number 27. If, if he had uh, written, we would never think twice about it. It would be just as lovely but he wanted to put us in the world first. Okay, so Mozart's connection to Freemasonry is a bit of a mystery because we don't really have any evidence that Mozart was devout anything uh, except a devout composer. But he was a Freemason and one advantage of Freemasonry was that his fellow Freemasons tended to loan him money and not to expect it to be repaid. <laughs> so for whatever reasons, Mozart did develop this close relationship with Freemasonry. And as you all know, he wrote an opera, The Magic Flute, which has lots of Freemason elements. I'm not a Freemason, so of course I don't know all the secrets and I don't know everything. But, um, we know that the number three is important in Freemasonry. So Mozart writes the magic flute in E-flat major with three flats in the key signature. And all Mozart operas begin and end in the same key. He conceives them as entire works. Uh, other people 
write operas that start in one key and end in another key and it doesn't bother them, but it would bother Mozart deeply not to begin and end an opera in the same key. So the home key of the magic flute is the Masonic key of E flat, and there are three ladies and there are three <laughs> spirits, and the number three comes up again and again. So when he introduces the opera, it's with three fanfares. And after the three fanfares, he then proceeds to give us a more expanded version of the creation of a universe based on Masonic principles. But now we're in primordial confusion. Groping around. Notice the second violin part is off the beat. Nothing to hang on to. What's that chord doing in here? Diminished seventh like Bach. And then finally we find our way. And life is good again, right? But he had to take us through that. And if you think of the opening of Beethoven's first symphony, Beethoven does the same thing. Every symphony begins with a major chord or a minor chord. Beethoven opens his first symphony, introducing himself to the world as a symphonic composer, with a dominant seventh chord. So this symphony is supposedly in C major, but it begins like this. Here's C up here. Here's C, remember? We're still nowhere near it. <laughs> so, uh, C major, right? Here's the opening of Beethoven's first symphony. Beethoven is exploring all the different tonalities remotely connected to C major before he finally... And immediately he breaks away into another key. So he's saying, I am a pioneer. I am always breaking out into new territory. The opposite of Mozart, who finds how much beauty can I create right here without pushing the harmonic boundaries. So Beethoven, um, I remember I said that usually the slow movements of classical sonatas or symphonies or string quartets went into the subdominant key. Beethoven loved to go to much more remote keys for his slow movements, even in his early works. So in that first piano concerto, 
we're in C major. So here's a C. Now for the slow movement. We're in A flat. Well, there is one note in common between <laughs> C major and A flat. But for this, Beethoven is again exploring what is the uh, meaning of something below the surface. Um, and I think this idea comes from the magic flute, actually, because there's a moment when Tamino, the prince, the seeker character, uh, comes to a door and he says, I need to go through. And the speaker who comes out to tell him the trials that he has to go through in order to be allowed to pass through the portal is introduced to this music. Because of this change from a C-centered tonality to A-flat major, I think Beethoven absorbed this. And if you think of some of his early piano sonatas, he uses that exact same technique. In the piano sonata opus two, number three, um, something's going on like this. All right, very C major. And then, as if he's opened up the door to some universe, he just explores it in an improvisatory way. With diminished sevenths, of course. So Beethoven says, I could have done this. And then. You know, something. But he chooses to go to this very remote A flat major. This is where the classical period begins to break down. Because once we accept that any note, because it belongs to a completely foreign keys chord, uh, can move to that key. Tonality no longer has the absolute hold over sonata form that it used to have. So Beethoven takes Mozart's very subtle suggestion several steps further, and suddenly we're paving the way for Schubert and Mendelssohn and Chopin and Schumann. Um, and yet Beethoven remained, in many ways, very classical. So the order and the chaos are always an interesting balance in Beethoven. Uh, the Fifth Symphony is so familiar that you assume its opening is inevitable. But it begins on a silent beat. Mm. Ba, 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 ba. Right? Most symphonies go or or something like that. But so we don't hear the Now, you know what happens. And then the second time that this whole thing occurs, something 
utterly bizarre happens. And this oboe forgets to stop playing, right? The rest of the orchestra keeps playing, and the oboe goes. Oh yeah, back to the So, what Beethoven has done here is purposely break down the classical structure of a sonata allegro movement by having a solo oboe suddenly make a personal statement in the middle of this orchestral piece. So, uh, you know, when you hear it in 2011, you don't jump out of your seat and go, oh my God, but you can imagine in the early, in the first decade of the 1800s, people were flabbergasted by this, but people were listening. So, you know, that was another butterfly's wing. And suddenly we have all the composers emulating Beethoven, expressing themselves, not writing their music for the glory of God, the way Bach did all of his life, but doing something very different. So Beethoven uh, loves to recreate the universe. This is, this is um, something that, it's a task he feels big enough and equipped enough to do, which I think is, is interesting too. Um, now Mozart does it in a different way. I showed you the magic flute, but Mozart will do whatever it takes to create the universe of the story he's about to tell. So um, Don Giovanni is an opera that ultimately has the hero sent to hell. And Mozart, who very rarely writes in minor keys, um, for example, of the 27 piano concerti, two are in a minor key, and of the 41 symphonies, there's two in G minor, and that might be it. So Mozart's a major key composer more than some other people. He opens Don Giovanni in D minor, and then takes us through very strange worlds as if he's depicting the underworld, the universe of the underworld, in musical language. notes that aren't in the key signature. These explosions on notes that aren't the right notes. scales that are weird. So he's taken us through it, now he'll let the opera begin. So now we're in an 18th century classical opera, but for all those 20 bars or whatever, he's taken us to a different universe to say, this is the way um, 
the underworld might have evolved. This is what it's like. In the marriage of Figaro, which is essentially uh, a French farce with uh, Beaumarchais' play at its root, he begins the opera with a completely different kind of music to say, this is like court intrigue. Everybody is bustling around, whispering things about each other. Until it reaches a... Now, it sounds so natural that you, you might just think, oh, that's nice music. But not only does it have the element of, of rumor and of uh, gossip, but also classical music is usually in four-bar phrases. This is a seven-bar phrase. And the subtitle of The Marriage of Figaro is The Crazy Day. So Mozart wants us to feel the craziness by having a phrase that's not four bars or eight bars, but seven bars. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. So he can do that artlessly, and it seems natural. But Mozart loves to have seven-bar phrases or 11-bar phrases when he thinks that something quirky or eccentric is being depicted, like in Abduction from the Seraglio. Um, there, there's, a, there's a eunuch, um, but he was obviously castrated after his voice changed because he's a bass. <laughs> One of Leroy's parts. <laughs> and um, he's, he, <laughs> he's singing to a Spanish nobleman who's just shown up in Turkey, and um, the eunuch quite rightly suspects that the nobleman is up to no good from his point of view because he's trying to steal back uh, his fiancée and so uh, the two of them have a confrontation. And because it's supposed to be off balance and the two of them are in this conflict, Mozart has seven bar phrases and 11 bar phrases. Shout, Deutsche Teufel, ihr kriegt die Schwöre, sonst ohne Gnade, die Bastonade, noch habt ihr Zeit, noch habt ihr Zeit. So you probably didn't go, oh my God, it's an 11 bar phrase, but sure enough it is. And if you look at classical music, you don't usually find 11-bar phrases. So Mozart does these things on purpose to impose chaos on order because he wants to do it, not because he couldn't think how to make a 12-bar or a 16-bar <laughs> phrase. Okay. Um, oh, I found out something else interesting on the internet. I'm, I'm an internet junkie. Um, in 1784, there was a British astronomer named John Mitchell, Mitchell with no T, M-I-C-H-E-L-L. And he said in 1784, it is probable that there are celestial bodies so heavy that even light cannot escape them. Okay, this was 1784. So uh, Laplace said the same thing in 1796. So the idea was starting to go around. Now, I don't know if Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven knew anything about science, but I know that suddenly silence, as I said in that one piece of Haydn's, becomes a very pregnant part of musical expression. And the idea that music goes to a false cadence and sort of disappears into a black hole for a second and then reemerges somehow becomes part of this idea of chaos in the classical period. So here's our friend Haydn. This is from the London Symphony, number 104.
He loves these. So it's asking, what's going to come next? Where does Mozart do something like that? Um, in the Magic Flute, uh, Tamino is looking for Pamina, and he decides if he plays his flute, maybe she will come. So we're going to get And then suddenly, in the middle of a melody, he uh, breaks off. He's singing, um, Obviously unresolved. Doch, doch Pamina, doch Pamina ist davor. So this idea that the world can be stopped and that we create a musical dramatic expression by leaving a harmony unresolved is a huge part of classical period. And as I say, you will not find uh, Handel or Bach or any of the Baroque composers suddenly stopping on purpose when the ear can hear that something else should happen. If we look at the arc of Beethoven's career, toward the end, when he is no longer able to hear anything, uh, he becomes more mystical. He begins to think about writing pieces in the Lydian mode, going back, you know, 500 years to when people composed in the modes. He had a 10th symphony in mind in a Lydian mode, but we didn't unfortunately get his 10th symphony. We did get a movement from one of the string quartets called the Heilige Dankgesang, the Holy Song of Thanks, which he writes in the Lydian mode. He feels that he communicates with God best in the Lydian mode. You're probably wondering what is the Lydian mode. The fourth degree is sharped. Instead of this, So as Beethoven was having these uh, mystical years towards the end of his life, he wrote in ways that did indeed seem like he was creating a chaotic, in the old Greek sense, uh, universe. This is the opening of the first movement of the Ninth Symphony. It's just a fifth. There's no note in between to tell us major, minor. But until we until we arrive, we have no idea. We're just in this outer space region. And he purposely doesn't let us know right away what key we're in. In the same symphony, the ninth symphony, the beginning of the third movement, instead of being um, something like this, Instead, he makes us listen to the suspension of every note. 
right? So not only... That's right. Then we hear this, which destroys the underpinning of this F-centered tonality and then returns. So Beethoven definitely uses chaos to keep us away from having too easy of a time of knowing where we are, so that when we do settle, we have a deeper sense of an importance to that arrival. I think that's uh, a technique Beethoven used a lot in later life. The final piano sonata, the 32nd piano sonata, uh, is ultimately in C minor. But before we arrive in C minor, So he's using diminished sevenths to suspend the arrival of any actual key until we reach it. But uh, Beethoven's doing it purposely to say, let's open our minds to everything that's out there before we settle in on a theme. Now, ultimately, music takes those first few bars and that becomes the central argument much more than in the classical period where the central argument is always that key theme and the theme which answers it. I want to just come back to Mozart to end because um, Mozart wrote lots of sets of variations and uh, he wrote a variation on a French folk song when he was in Paris and it's A vous dirais-je maman, uh, which is Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Uh, a vous dirais-je, maman, ce qui cause mon tourment Depuis que j'ai vu qu'il tendre, me regarder d'un air tendre Mon cœur dit à chaque instant, peut-on vivre sans amant Ah, I tell you, mother, uh, since I've seen Clitendre, I can't sleep at night, and my heart asks me at every moment, can one live without a lover? So, of course, the French would have those words to it, right? <laughs> so, this is a, the, a tune that he'd heard and liked. and then proceeds to write 12 variations on the theme. Now, variations obviously are a form of purposeful chaos because we've already heard the tune, we know the tune, and it's interesting to us what will become of that poor little tune. So, a variation one. essentially the same melody but with ornamentation in the same meter and the same tempo. But later on in the piece Mozart says, well, what if this were uh, in the minor key? And he begins to explore. And then we really plunge into chaos here.
it's Mozart, so of course he's going to bring us back to... But still with lots of chromatic passing tones, right? And then at the end, he says, first, what if this were a slow tenor aria? Or soprano aria. Yeah, love those suspensions. <laughs> and finally, he says, what if this were a rollicking Viennese waltz, right? play something longer than eight bars because I know it's frustrating. <laughs> so Mozart always returns us to the ordered universe, but Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, all in their individual ways, show us these glimpses of the fact that that order is always waiting to be undermined or taken over by harmonic, rhythmic, melodic possibilities that are uh, stretching, stretching, stretching further away. You all know who Arnold Schoenberg was. <laughs> Arnold Schoenberg combined chaos and order in a brilliant way. He created music that sounds utterly chaotic, and it, uh, later, later in life, he, he began life as a romantic composer. But when he was writing in his serial, S-E-R-I-A-L, not C-E-R-A-L, uh, <laughs> in his serial phase, he ordered the 12 tones uh, in all kinds of different ways and turn them upside down and backwards. And uh, so the pieces are utterly logical, but to our ears, which are so centered in uh, scales, uh, it doesn't sound logical. But somebody said to Schoenberg, where did you ever come up with the idea of 12-tone atonal music? And he said, in the development sections of the works of Bach and Mozart, because always something is stated in the clearest, simplest harmonic language and always is then explored how far can we stretch this before it breaks. So it breaks in about 1830 or 1840 and suddenly we have all the wealth of romantic music with its much richer harmonies. Of course, ultimately, romantic music can't contain all the wealth of complexity that great composers begin to put into it, and that system as well ultimately breaks down. So we come to, I suppose, 1952, when John Cage wrote a piece called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which is not a piece of music, it's a, it's a political statement about uh, where 
music has arrived because four minutes and 33 seconds is somebody playing three movements and never touching the instrument. What, it doesn't matter what it is because they never play it. But um, <laughs> it's, it's written for a pianist. And so um, at this moment in 1952, the artistic world has to admit that music has tried monody and harmony and polyphony and renaissance and baroque and classical and romantic and and then all of the kinds of more contemporary non-traditional music until finally uh, it reaches silence after which point composers of the last 61 years 60 years uh, have to decide what language speaks to them so whatever language they choose Benjamin Britten said, as long as a composer has technical means, he may use whatever language he wants. But I think whatever a composer chooses, he or she may use anything as long as there is the right balance of order and chaos. Think for a moment about the Rite of Spring, written almost 100 years ago. That seems strange because many people still think it's a modern piece. But Stravinsky wrote the Rite of Spring in 1913, and he took tiny snippets of Russian folk melodies, but overlaid them with discordant orchestral sounds. However, he chose to repeat those sounds so that the ear became accustomed to them. So that this chord might sound discordant to you, but by the time you've heard it 20 times, it begins to have a logic and an order of its own. Uh, Olivier Messiaen took two, three, took three things and, and wrote a whole lifetime of compositions around them. Um, bird songs, which he took down on a tape recorder and then notated as precisely as he could. Indian rhythms, which were um, say 11 against 17, or I should say against 17. If, if one drum started playing periods of 11 and another periods of 17, then they'd meet after 187 beats. And so. Um, so, so he would actually put this in his music. And um, there's order there, but it sounds like chaos for sure. And uh, the third element was his own mystical Catholicism. And he um, wrote gigantic pieces, you know, the catalog of birds, a piano piece that's two hours long, the 20 visions of of uh, infant Jesus, uh, 100 minutes long, and uh, uses chords which, like Stravinsky's chords, are atonal, but because we hear them slowly and repetitively, suddenly his mystical vision begins <laughs> to take on enough order that we see sense in the chaos. Here's a bit of um, Messiaen. This is the beginning of Vin Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus. Actually, that's the beginning of the fifth movement. The beginning of the whole thing takes it even slower. This is like Wagner and the Rhine. So, even with a language that is foreign, a composer can quickly, by repetition and variation, make that language seem logical to us. Because, although we don't know why, our minds like to do that 
with music. And even if I go back to um, 2,000 years ago, Hoson yes fainu maiden holo sulu puhu has a, enough logic that we can grasp it, but enough unpredictability that it makes an imprint and we find it interesting. I hope that you're able to listen to melodies either way. I don't want to um, make the rest of your life a search for what makes a melody good or bad. <laughs> that would be really annoying for you, I know. But sometimes when you're listening, whether it's to a folk song or to a symphony, stop and think, what is going on here? Is the rhythmic germ being repeated? Is it being repeated, but what variation? And I think you'll find, and that is, of course, the purpose of having these get-togethers, that your love and your enjoyment of great music will be even deeper because uh, almost anybody who is writing great music um, is using all of these tools that we've just touched on tonight. So I just want to take a minute and take questions in case I've left anyone puzzled about anything. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be shy. Carlin. I'm wondering if there really is, if chaos is even possible because... What a fabulous question. Of course, chaos is the way complex organization looks to our puny little human minds. And um, I don't think that we'll ever be in the perspective to say whether true chaos is possible, <laughs> right? But um, chaos is a human construct, obviously. And when we say something is chaotic, we mean we don't get it. Uh, and so um, as music became you know, more simple in means, but then more complex in deployment, and, and that cycle kept repeating. Um, whenever it reached the point that it did become too complex for even musicians to appreciate, the structure would collapse. So I think you're absolutely right, that chaos itself is an illusion. Um, and, and uh, you know, maybe um, in the same way that now we see things that scientists in the Middle Ages saw and we say, Wow, they were so uh, limited. You know, they thought that the um, orbs of the planets had to be circular because circles were perfect, and it really bothered uh, Newton, who was, you know, a magician at heart, but had uh, the misfortune, I suppose, to discover most of the mechanical laws of the universe. Really bothered him that he wasn't the person who discovered it, but it bothered him that orbits should be elliptical and that the planets were more towards one side of the ellipse than the other. Uh, you know, mathematicians in the um, Middle Ages felt certain numbers were prime because they should be. And um, they thought that, that if, uh, if two was raised to a prime power and then you subtracted one, that that would always be a prime number. Well, wouldn't that have been nice? But, um, you know, they didn't test very far because two to the 11th minus one is 2047 and is divisible by 23. But um, this was for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, they thought and the reason they wanted to know this is because if you knew which primes were of that form, you could generate uh, perfect numbers, numbers like six that, that had factors one, two, and three that added up to them. Again, they were looking for scientific and mathematical things that proved God had created a very orderly universe. Well, fortunately, our idea of order grew. <laughs> so Ernest Rutherford in 1895 was talking to British scientists, and he said, we know all of the laws of the universe 
We just need to make our measurements more accurate. <laughs> and then 10 years later, you know, a few papers were published by Einstein, and then a couple decades later, quantum mechanics was discovered, and that was all blown to hell. So I think that you know, we can expect, uh, if, we, if we get to live to 2,500, people will say, how primitive these people were. But that's great. I think that's great. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, if I've been on the job for three or four or five or six months or a couple of years, and I get to take a vacation and uh, explore parts of the world I've never seen, a one-month vacation, and then I come back and uh, do, do the sort of things that I've been used to doing. It, it, it's all great. It, it's just as you described it. Uh, there's no, in other words, there's no place like home. You can wander around. Are you making the analogy with the classical form of <laughs> starting in a home key, wandering as far right. as the right. piece can possibly bear, and then returning? Right. I, th I think we all do it, and, and that's why we say home sweet home. That's why we say home sweet home. When you listen to non-narrative music, um, it can be successful, I suppose, most if you enter an altered state. Uh, if you listen to a piece of music, I don't mean by, by doing anything necessarily, but uh, if you listen to a piece of music which is a C major chord over and over, um, it's possible to appreciate if C major itself starts to sound different to you. But... Um, <laughs> That's, that's a different kind of chaos, I suppose, by, by making order so uh, rigid that your, your mind is free to leave. It's kind of like a, a meditation technique or something. But in, in classical style, we'll start in um, our home key, we'll travel as far away as we possibly can, and then when we come home, it feels so good. I think that's exactly what you're saying. I love that. Well, thank you all. Safe trip home. <laughs> Thank you.